to be honest with you, if I was you, I probably would have thought the same thing you did. Like, okay, this is a patient with a large body habitus. Looks like she's breathing kind of slow. She's probably just hypercapnic. And while that was the case, she was hypercapnic. That wasn't actually the source. Help me make sense of this. How do you go from overdiuresis to metabolic alkalosis? Like, help me fill in the dots there. Absolutely. I love nerdy pathos, so let's do it. there. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories, bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Around Podcast. Today is part two, where we'll be revealing the diagnosis of the patient that Annie presented last week. So if you haven't already listened to episode 68, go ahead and pause right here. Go back and listen to that first. You can hear about how this patient presented first and then come back to learn all about diuresis-induced metabolic alkalosis. So Annie, can you just give us a quick recap of your patient and what prompted you to speak up that something is wrong? Yeah, so I had a patient on a telemetry floor who had been admitted for fluid volume overload. So she was at the tail end of being aggressively diuresed. She was fairly bulimic. And she had presented to me with lethargy, mildly hypotensive. And she was being flagged for SIRS criteria because of a bump in creatinine, hypotension, myeloococytosis, and lethargy. Okay. So the team arrived. What's like being discussed? Like, what's everyone thinking's going on? Okay. So I was on team OHS here. So obesity, <laughs> hypoventilation syndrome slash OSA. Okay. And I thought, you know, since she had, she had taken Adorax, this is maybe, you know, an important point to bring up. She had taken Adorax, so she was sleeping probably a little bit more soundly than okay. she usually does. And that because of how she was breathing and when she was sleeping, I was really stuck on that diagnosis. The rapid response nurse had arrived because the patient had been flagged for a SERS criteria. So she was on team sepsis, looking at WBCs, which were 16, and the fact that this patient actually had a positive UA on admission. Okay. All right. Understandably, both sides saw a good possible diagnosis, right? So I'll tell you, this happens all the time. We show up, go through differentials. Literally, no one has any idea to improve anything with either diagnostic imaging or lab values. Like, we're all trying to figure out how can we rule this in or rule that out. It's like, a, it really is a mystery. So it is. I think the big one for you guys was the VBG. So what were the results of the VBG for this patient? Okay. 
So I'm going to list out the BBGs. And remember here, these are not ABGs. These are VBGs. Yes. Very important yeah. clarification because <laughs> when I first read your summary of the case, I was like, oh my God, the PO2 is 40. Oh, BBG. Right. Okay. Right. We're talking about venous <laughs> blood here, not Got as oxygenated. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So the pH was 7.53, PO2, 40. Normal. That's normal for VBG. <laughs> PCO2, so her carbon dioxide was 55, okay. and her bicarb was 38. Yep, that'll do it. <laughs> so the question is, what would cause such a severe alkalosis? And that's what I want to break on today. Right. Like, what did the team say? Was the doctor here at that point, or what was everyone, like, whenever this result was read, what did everyone have to say? The general consensus was, well, it's not that bad. But I was... A little bit surprised by the fact that her CO2 was actually not that high considering, you know, how much I, I was suspecting OHS. Mm -hmm. I was also not really expecting alkalosis. It's not something we see all that much in the hospital. Yeah. We're really looking for the acidosis. Right. So I wasn't really sure what to make of it. So it was actually a PA, so an advanced practitioner who arrived and the patient was part of a heart failure team, a specific team that we have at our hospital who see patients with heart failure. And so she was very clued into the fact that if you overdiurese a patient that you can run into metabolic alkalosis. And this was news to me. I hadn't heard of this before. So that's why I presented to Sarah. I said, help me make sense of this. How do you go from overdiuresis to metabolic alkalosis? Like, help me fill in the dots there. Absolutely. I love nerdy pathos, so let's do it. Okay. Yeah. So for a metabolic alkalosis, when you're looking at ABG, it would be a pH greater than 7.45. For a VBG, just greater than 7.38 is considered alkalosis. And then it has to be linked to a metabolic source. So the bicarb would need to be greater than, I think it's 26 for an ABG or greater than 27 for a BBG. Okay, so metabolic alkalosis. But specifically, this patient was from diuresis. But in general, you can get a metabolic alkalosis for multiple reasons. So hyperventilation is what I see most common. You know, the patients have an anxiety attack or lots of pain and they're breathing really fast and blowing off CO2, so they get alkalotic to the lot. Fever, same thing, make sure breathe fast, blow off CO2, alkalosis. PE, same thing, alkalosis. High altitude, like lots of things can do it. And also overdiuresis. So with this patient, it was a little bit confusing because she did have that like hypoventilation, which was trying to compensate, but yet she was hypercapnic. So if you want to further analyze the BBG I gave, it would be partially compensated metabolic alkalosis. Yeah. So this is something that the the APP kind of like kind of nodded, like very knowingly said, uh, she's trying to compensate by hypoventilating. I was like, oh, now it all makes sense. This whole presentation makes sense. Right. So usually we're like, oh my gosh, they're hypoventilating. But her body's doing what it's supposed to do in this yep. case, right? It wasn't, mm -hmm. it didn't do it enough, didn't fix it enough, but it was, it was trying. Yeah, it was, it was on its way. <laughs> and again, whenever you're hypoventilating, which might cause your CO2 to go up, that makes you drowsy as well. The other thing you'll see when it's pretty extreme is hypocalcemia, when the pH 
shifts to be alkalotic, it reduces like ionized calcium levels, which causes like paresthesias and carbopyl spasms, all those things. Hmm. Okay. So when it comes to metabolic alkalosis, either you have lost a lot of acid from hyperventilating or you've lost acid from GI losses like vomiting or NG tube and lots of output or diuresis. You've lost acid that way. The other option is maybe you haven't lost stuff, but you've just accumulated a bunch of base, like you took in too much base, either orally or via IV fluids, or you can't excrete your base because of something wrong with your kidneys. So either you've lost too much acid or you're holding on to too much base is a summary there. This patient actually had both going on. Okay. So a thing to remember that I encounter a lot as a rapper's boss nurse is people say, there's no way this patient's overdiuresis because they still are volume overloaded. I still hear fluid in their lungs and I still see puffiness in their legs. But sometimes patients can actually be diuresis, so they are extravascularly overloaded. So they are diuresis so fast they are intravascularly dry. So like their fluid volume status inside their blood vessels is not enough, even though they still have that like puffiness peripherally or like wet in their lungs. So it is really a balance of trying to get the fluid to shift from the extracellular space into the vasculature so that the kidneys can push the extra fluid out. And that that kind of takes time. I think I was also going to mention that the agent that she was on was Bumex. And that is a very powerful diuretic. So I can easily see that kind of being the culprit here is just too rapid of a diuresis. For sure, for sure. So then there's this whole thing called contraction alkalosis. The idea is the kidneys are usually pretty good at excreting excess bicarb. Like if I took like a whole bottle of Tums, which is a base, my kidneys would be like, that's weird, that's too much, pee it all out, no problem. Most kidneys can handle it, right? The kidneys usually can sense when bicarb level is too high, and so it dumps out the extra into the urine. All right. So volume depletion from diuresis, which is also known as volume contraction, just means that the amount of bicarb is comparatively higher because the amount of volume is now less. So kind of like when patients are really dehydrated and their H&H will go up, sorry, hemoglobin hematocrit goes up, it's just like a concentration difference because the concentration is higher in comparison to the plasma volume, which is now lower because they're dehydrated. So same thing with um, volume contraction is the reason the bicarb might go up initially resulting in the quote-unquote contraction alkalosis. But well-functioning kidneys should be able to excrete the excess bicarb. What maintains a metabolic alkalosis is when the GFR, our glomerular filtration rate, has gone down. And now the kidneys don't have the same capacity to excrete the stuff the body doesn't need. So it's a two-part challenge. First, volume depletion and poor kidney function equals metabolic alkalosis, right? And you had said she got BUMX, she was volume depleted, and her kidney function had worsened. You didn't mention the GFR, but we saw her BUN had gone up, right? Uh, Her creatinine had doubled. It had literally doubled from one day to the next. Right. So initially it might have been a contraction alkalosis, but then now her kidneys can't get rid of us. So she's stuck with this metabolic alkalosis. So If you're like, oh, the problem is they got too much volume taken off, just give us the volume back. A little more too than that. So the body needs more than just volume to fix the problem when there's a contraction alkalosis. They also need chloride. So in in this one case, you would not want to go with LR to fix things. You would actually want to go with either sodium chloride or saline 
or if the potassium is also low, which happens a lot with loop diuretics, then potassium chloride would also help correct the metabolic alkalosis. So we can't just be like, drinks lost the water. Specifically, we want, we want the chloride in conjunction with it. So the treatment for metabolic alkalosis from diuretics is you don't have to necessarily like stop all diuretics because sometimes the patients still need it, right? Like patients I've cared for in the ICU, we don't want to just stop it all together. They still need that fluid to come off. We just need to choose the right agent to do it. So you don't have to stop diuretics, but you do need to hold the ones that potentiate alkalosis, like Lasix and Bumex, for example. You can still give diuretics like spironolactone and um, acetazolamide. And then for severe metabolic alkalosis, like the really bad ones, obviously you're going to need some saline or something there, but maybe even more extreme stuff like hydrochloric acid, which honestly I've never given as a nurse. But if they get too acolytic, we have some major problems too. We always focus on the acidosis, like, oh my gosh, they're acidotic. But if they're too acolytic, that's also really concerning. So the summary of the treatment is it's usually multimodal. It's not just one saying like, oh, give more volume back or just all the Lasix and be done with it. You kind of have to approach it from a couple different angles to get it fixed. Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course. However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I wanna offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I want to create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I want to teach live, address your questions, and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions, and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory, and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. So in this patient's case, how did they end up treating her diuresis-induced metabolic alkalosis? Yeah, so the idea of giving her 
fluid bath was on the table. The treatment plan was discussed uh, within the heart failure team and ultimately came back that we were going to simply hold uh, diuretics for the rest of the day and okay. uh, to reassess the next morning. Yeah. And honestly, if she was towards the end of her diuretic treatment, if they, if they already pulled off the sufficient volume, that probably was the best choice, right? If they did their job, then stop them <laughs> if they're still causing a problem. Right. But some patients, they did their job on the vascular side, but there's still a lot of fluid that has to come off from the extravascular side. So we would keep the diuretics going. It just kind of depends on the patient and all the factors that go with each specific and unique patient, right? Right. I'll point out that she was fairly stable through all of this, right? Like the yeah. blood pressure was a little bit low, but she was maintaining okay. Like I said, lethargy, but she was still, you know, oriented. She was not critical. She wasn't in the ICU. She was on a tel telemetry floor. Right. And so the hope is when her pH corrects itself because there's no longer the contraction alkalosis, so the pH comes down, then the body no longer compensates by hypoventilating. And so the CO2 will also correct. Now she can actually blow off that CO2 and her mentation will improve, right? Which you didn't get to have her back a third day. That would be like a miracle for a, a float nurse to have a patient three days in a row. <laughs> but I'm sure the next day, once her pH had corrected, she was back to her normal self, walking and talking and, and feeling much better. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, it's fascinating how the body knows to compensate. It is amazing, isn't it? And I know while I didn't have her back for a third day, I know that she did discharge shortly after. Okay. So she did pull around and good news. I uh, was stable enough to go home. Good news. So that was a lot of like pretty heavy pathophys. Do you have any questions about any questions the listeners might have about diuresis induced metabolic alkalosis? Mouthful. When should we have high suspicion for diuretic induced metabolic alkalosis? To be honest with you, if I was you, I probably would have thought the same thing you did. Like, okay, this is a patient with a large body habitus. It looks like she's breathing kind of slow. She's probably just hypercapnic. And while that was the case, she was hypercapnic. That wasn't actually the source, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, look at the whole picture. We can see, okay, she's been very diuresed. We can rule out Adirax as the source here because that should be worn off of her system. I wouldn't have any suspicion of anything until I saw the VBG is the honest truth. So yes, the clinical picture kind of leads you there. And we do, I have definitely seen patients who have the metabolic alkalosis from diuretics, but usually they just kind of back off the diuretics a little bit and it corrects itself. Or they just give a little fluid bolus, like 250 a saline or something, just to kind of shift things around. Yeah. But I don't know that there's ever a case where I have high suspicion because all the symptoms are so vague. And they are also the same symptoms of hypercapnia. <laughs> so... So I think I would have been in the same spot that you are. So great, great question. I've always wondered how clinicians know how quickly to diurese and when to stop uh, diuretics on a patient. And like, I was wondering, is it just by physical assessment? Well, like, what, are, what parameters are they looking at? Do you have a sense of that, Sarah? This, what I have gathered is that every patient is so very different. <laughs> right. Even like how much... They go say, oh, yeah, we gave the Lasix and they had 500 cc's of output. And some docs are like, great, that's perfect. And some docs are like, oh, that's not enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm assuming it's based on weight and lab values and how bad the chest X-ray is. I mean, there's a lot of factors. But really, when you're trying to diurese a patient, say a heart failure patient, they really should not be going off of lab values alone. It really should be clinical presentation. 
So you give yeah. the Lasix, you come back in four hours, you ask the patient, how are you feeling? How is your breathing, right? It should be like, look at their legs. How do they look less puffy? So lab values sometimes can kind of lead you astray. It's like, oh no, they're getting worse. Look at the creatinine. Mm-hmm. Maybe the kidneys are just a little bit drier than they were before. And that's why things have shifted. They're not getting worse. You, you actually just diarrhea stem. But it is a delicate balance of, you know, looking at their symptoms. If, are they improving? And then looking at their lab values and looking for the, the trend there. But man, there's no there's no perfect algorithm for it. I think it's it's all patient specific, symptom specific. Yeah, it looks very nuanced. Yes. Oh, of course. Isn't healthcare in general right? Very yeah. Good. <laughs> Any other questions that need to be clarified more? I wanted to address the fact that she had myeloleukocytosis. So, like I said, WBCs were 16, and she had a positive UA. And the rapid response nurse who came to the bedside. And my charge nurse were really not pressing for, but advocating for the idea of giving this patient antibiotics for the positive EUA. And like I said, the elevated white count. But I, I appreciated the fact that the clinician politely declined and pointed out that this patient had no urinary symptoms, right? She had no dysuria. I mean, the frequency she had was from the diuretics. There was no burning sensation when she was uh, urinating. And they said, if you look back at her UAs, historically, she had always tested positive for the same bacteria. So they said, well, look, she's colonized. And because she doesn't have urinary symptoms, we're not going to be giving antibiotics. I thought that showed very sound clinical reasoning and antibiotic stewardship, I think it would have been easy for them to just say, okay, here you go, here's an antibiotic. So I thought that it showed very good critical thinking and it's something to catch as we're nurses that just because someone is five for serious criteria does not necessarily mean that there is an infectious process going on. Yeah. And you actually did an episode about this recently, right? About sepsis mimics? Yes, yes, yes. So if you really like uh, diagnostics and the investigative part of, of medicine, I recently did a, a whole episode about sepsis mimics, mm-hmm. uh, which was based off of a presentation I attended at NTI this year that a lot of things look like sepsis that aren't. And I thought the my guest did a great job of explaining, you know, some common the sepsis imposters and really promoting the idea of antibiotic stewardship. Yeah, yeah. I think that sepsis is like so ingrained in us. Like, right. It's like we're conditioned to always be like heart rate plus blood pressure plus white count equals sepsis, ding, ding, ding. But you're right. It's not always. I did a podcast a little while back too about a patient who had hypotension, tachycardia, a known wound that was infected, elevated white cat, like all the things, all the substance things. But now they got really hypotensive. And so everyone's going down that track, the septic shock track. But turns out it was actually an aortic aneurysm. And the low blood pressure was because he was bleeding. (laughs) So it's really easy to get, you know, you're like, yay, I found the winner. I found the winning diagnosis. Like move in that both diagnostic and treatment track but we can't get tunnel vision on the one thing because then we miss out on the opportunity to treat any other things going on because patients, surprisingly, can actually have two diagnoses at one time. You can have an infection and also have something else going on. An aortic aneurysm. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, goodness. Very different treatment pathway yeah. when it comes to aortic <laughs> versus sepsis. So, yeah, I think it's so important just to open your mind to like, it's not always sepsis. So I'm glad you did a whole episode about it because that, that needed to be said. Very good. Yeah, I think, you know, for good reason that we're conditioned to have a high suspicion for sepsis, right? Like mm-hmm. it is so common and it is so deadly. And when I was looking through the, you know, list of sessions at NTI this year, I was like, my goodness, I'm somewhat new to going to NTI. I was like, do they have this many sepsis presentations every year? And then just kind of realizing like sepsis is always going to be a big deal especially as a critical care conference, sepsis is always going to be extremely prevalent in critical care. But I appreciated my guest's point of view that, yes, we should absolutely be thinking about sepsis, but let's, let's have a little bit more of a nuanced understanding and think outside the box. Like, if it's not sepsis, what else could it be? Amen, Annie. Amen. All right. Two minutes wraps it up. <laughs> yeah. Annie, this is great. I'm so glad you shared this case with me. It's definitely the nerdy side of me loves this kind of stuff. So thank you <laughs> for, for sharing this with me. Before I let you go, though, can you just take a minute and tell my listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So uh, my podcast is Up My Nursing Game. It is for acute critical care and emergency nurses where I use expert interviews to address common clinical questions and pitfalls for nurses. Love it. Right up my alley. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Annie, it's always a pleasure talking with you. It was great collaborating again for an episode. I look forward to this one coming out and my listeners getting to learn from this really interesting case. So thanks so much for coming back. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN.